Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. No cultural barriers in God's kingdom. From the 8th chapter of Luke, I start in the first verse. It says, After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. But verse 2 says, And also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others, these women's, women were helping to support them out of their own means. Now, this verse has been used many, many times. This is nothing original with me today. But we see this, and we see all the makings of a women's ministry. It has been identified that by, as that many times before this sermon today. And the most popular assessment of the first person mentioned here, Mary Magdalene, is that she was a prostitute. However, let's make a correction today, okay? Even this, even this suggestion that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute became so popular that the church built uh, houses and rescue missions and hospitals and, and uh, outreaches that, that were uh, named after Mary Magdalene that were aimed towards uh, women of ill repute. And they were known as Magdalas. Uh, a lot of things were developed off of this theory that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. But if you read your text carefully, you'll discover there is nothing there to tell you that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. As a matter of fact, one of the commentators uh, said this about that particular issue. There is a marvelous propensity in commentators to make some of the women mentioned in sacred writings appear as women of ill fame. Why is it that automatically, when it says a woman is a sinner, we think the worst? Luke only tells us that Mary had been delivered of seven demons. As a matter of fact, let's think of it this way. Had Mary Magdalene been a prostitute, it would have been scandalous fodder for the critics of Christ for them to say, here's this itinerant evangelist traveling around, and the rumors that start now is, and guess who he has put on staff? They've got their own resident prostitute on staff to take care of the needs of the men that are traveling around raising their eyebrows while they say such a thing. 
But we don't read of any indication whatsoever in Scripture that that was an accusation against Jesus, which is further proof that she probably wasn't a prostitute because his critics would have jumped all over that one, I guarantee you. He was already accused of being a friend of publicans and sinners, yet they took no advantage of saying, and besides, he he hangs, hangs out with prostitutes. Then we have the second woman that is listed here, Joanna. And there's only a couple of things that we can reasonably surmise about Joanna. First of all, she's the wife of an officer of the king's court, and that puts her in a social status that was probably above just the common working people of that day. And it includes her financial status, which would have been slightly better, probably not rich working in the king's court, but at least taken care of. A better job than most comfortable and the second thing that we can surmise about that is her participation in this clues us in that some seeds about Christianity of course it wasn't Christianity at that time but the followers of Christ some seeds about the Messiah his presence are being sown in Herod's court if she believes in Jesus and has any influence on her husband, and her husband works in the king's court, whether the husband buys into it or not, at least it's going to be known that his wife is following Christ. So there there is an opening there in the court of King Herod by her participation in this. And what was Joanna's problem? We don't know for sure. She's listed among the women who some of them were delivered of demons and some of them were healed. So we've got a choice there, and it doesn't make any difference which one. She was also miraculously touched by Jesus, and it was life-changing for her. We list Susanna, and we don't know anything about Susanna, except she's included as Susanna and many others. So three women are mentioned by name, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna, and then many others, all of whom were delivered of demons or healed. Now, everybody who is touched by Christ has an opportunity to do something with that or do nothing with it. These three women, as well as others, were touched by Christ and it changed their life. I don't know what they were doing before they were touched by Christ, but after they were touched by Christ, they followed the disciples around. Not, we're not just talking about groupies. Just like to hang out where the glory is falling. Women who are following Jesus and following the disciples with a purpose. The second point is everyone can contribute to the kingdom work. The scene is established. There is a group of women... They've all been miraculously touched by Christ in one way or another. And they've banded together with a common purpose, and that is to commit themselves 
to providing support out of their own means to Christ and his disciples. We've got to think in cultural terms. Women were not typically breadwinners in those days. If the husband died, who was the breadwinner, widows were left often destitute. It was not a culture that allowed women the ability to make a decent living. They might be somebody like Lydia who was a seller of purple, who was able to somehow generate a little bit of income with some kind of craft. But when it says that these women supported them out of their own means, we have to admit what means. An allowance that their husband gave them? We don't know that that happened. Out of their own means because they were able to generate a little money by being a seller of purple or or mending clothes or doing whatever. Well, there probably wasn't a lot of call for that. People didn't have a lot of money to hire those things out. They did them themselves. So it was not a great amount of means. But you have to consider the possibility and knowing women like we do that they were creative in finding some means somehow to be able to support their newfound ministry. So we have fundraisers. Some way, there was a need there. And some way, they came up with the funds to be able to subsidize that ministry. Now, here's the women. Here's the group. Here's the ministry. And one important thing, the first important thing I see out of this is how women respond to a life-changing touch from God compared to how men respond to a life-changing touch from God. Evidently, men did respond because they left their livelihood. They put their family duties on hold as much as they could. When Jesus came to them and said, follow me, they left their nets. Matthew left the receipt of customs, a tax collector. And others who left whatever their livelihood was and followed Jesus, they responded. They were touched by Christ, they were impressed by Christ, they were called by Christ, and they made dedications to follow him and devote themselves to him A hundred percent. Women were healed or delivered of demon powers. And they reacted differently. Now, not everybody who's touched by Jesus is consecrated to Jesus. That is sad. I have seen it in the years of my own ministry. People who have been miraculously healed by God. And two years later, they're not making any effort to serve him. I've seen that. I knew of a woman in one town in California that she was a a well-known woman in the community. And she had a restaurant and everybody knew her restaurant, knew her cooking. She was very well known. She had cancer. 
It was a desperate situation. She came to our church, and this was before I was the pastor there, but I'm trying to tell the story as concise as I can. Came to our church. They had prayer for her, and she was miraculously healed of her cancer. They were telling her it was terminal. By the time I became pastor there, she was still living and cancer-free and doing well. Got healed, but had no use for God and no use for church. Isn't that amazing that you can receive a touch from God and do nothing about it? I cannot understand that for me. I serve God whether he has touched me or not. But had he touched me like that, how much more would I be determined to serve him and be sold out to him? Ten lepers came to Jesus. And as they went, they were healed. But only one cared enough about coming back to Jesus and saying, thank you. And I wonder about what the nine who got healed were thinking. How unthankful can people be? Even little kids. When an adult gives them something, and we adults are standing around and watching this, we're overseeing the behavior of the child, and the proper response, aren't we? An adult gives a child a little present, and what do we adults do? What do you say? We want to see an expression of gratitude for something that has been given to them. We're teaching the child, I shouldn't have to cue you every time. I wish you would just grow into this understanding. When somebody gives you something, you say, thank you. But then, those who do not choose to ignore how they have been blessed, those who are touched by Christ, and they know what to do with that, they know how to express their gratitude, and the gratitude doesn't fade with time. It's not like, God, you have touched me, you have spared me, you have saved me, therefore, I'm going to go to church for two years. But it's a lifetime commitment. Look what you've done for me, and I dedicate everything for my life to you. That's gratitude. Now, the men were called of Christ, and they responded. But I find it quite colorful and interesting that the women who are touched by Christ, look what they do. I have to admit... That is admirable as it is for the men to quit their careers and follow Jesus. None of them ever matched the response of the women. It's the women who are in the Bible seen as humbling themselves so deeply before Christ in total humility and servitude. It's the women who come to him And the woman who washes his feet with her tears. It wasn't a man that did that. And dried it with her hair. Because when she was touched by Jesus, she had the capacity to express herself in this way that that men can't see themselves doing that. It's the woman that came to Jesus and broke the alabaster box and 
poured it on his head and anointed him. The way that the women respond, anointing him, kissing his feet, bowing before him in total humility, while in almost the same moment, the men who are following him are bickering about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom because they're having a hard time keeping their focus on what this is really about. And they're sure not interested in washing Christ's feet because that's women's work. And when Christ came in and washed his disciples' feet, we have an example of Peter saying, this is not right. We can get some women to do this. No, he didn't say that, but you know, it's, it kind of culturally goes along with that, what he's thinking. We, don't do, we men don't do that. And then, of course, the humility of Christ. So impacting Peter. That he says, well, in that case, wash my feet, wash my head, wash everything. Well, he's not quite there yet. It's not just a matter of being willing to allow this kind of service. It's a matter of being willing to do. What Peter's response might have better been is not just go ahead and wash my head too, but give me the towel. That's what we're getting down to, is us being servants. Selling out to God when we're touched by God. Allowing ourselves to be so filled with gratitude that it's life-changing. That we're selling out to God. That we're going to allow Him to change our character. Change our direction in life if that's what he calls us to do, change our priorities. That's what it means to respond properly to being touched by God. And the women did exactly that as they were touched by God, didn't just go their merry way, but they decided we owe something to him. And the women's group, that as they put out the word in whatever way they would have done in those days, I want to meet with all the women who have ever been healed or delivered of a demon. We're going to meet at Mary's house. And they came and they said, let's do something. Let's follow Christ. And let's help them in their ministry. Let's be a support ministry. Now, this is where I said a while ago, you notice he didn't call any women to be disciples, to be his apostles. And it's not like we're going to make some sort of a cultural, draw a cultural uh, conclusion out of that or draw a, a, a fixed principle. We, we do have to understand it's a cultural thing. We're not going to make a fixed principle out of it. Therefore, because Jesus didn't call any men, uh, didn't call any women, but he called only men, then today we can't draw that kind of a conclusion. Because what was happening is Jesus was working within a culture where he had to understand that had he called women to follow him and commission them to do what he was doing, they would not have been accepted in that culture. They would have not had any success in going into towns and ministering and trying to cast out demons and staying in houses. The culture would not have accepted it. Jesus had to go with where the open door was. But it doesn't mean that whenever culture begins to change, God would not allow women to step into a role where they would be effective. 
So we can't limit women just because he chose men, nor can we make this blanket statement that God thinks more of men and trusts them more because look who he chose anyway. That, that, that just doesn't, it doesn't fly. It doesn't make any, any good sense in interpreting Scripture. But the women had this unique thing about seeing a need and then going about to meet that need. I can tell you that my testimony is one of the good benefits of me being married is my wife brings a dimension to my life and my ministry that I do not naturally possess. She is more sensitive to the needs than I am. I can sometimes be so disconnected. And she has the sensitivity to see the needs and uh, I, I have to tell you, it, it, I marvel at her ability to tune in on that. Now, you women, you know what I'm talking about. We men, somehow it just goes totally by us. And she's tuned in, she sees the need, and then this mechanism that's automatic in her kicks in and she goes about figuring out a way to meet the need. While I'm sitting there not even realizing there's a need. I don't want to seem overly generalizing, but it seems to be a woman thing. It seems to be that thing that women can bring to the relationship that makes men look better than they are. That sensitive side. There is not the smallest indication that Jesus organized this women's group. Now, I don't know what their needs specifically were that they were ministering to, but we can imagine the women of that culture and what they were capable of doing. Were these men going to need something to eat once in a while? Sure they were. Would the women probably be uh, as good at taking care of that as anybody in that culture would have been? Probably so and more so. Uh, Just looking after the finer points of it. In other words, do you understand what I mean when I say the woman's touch? When an event needs a woman's touch, does that make sense to you? There's a difference between a man's touch on events. And a woman's touch. I've held annual training for board members and potential board members. And there have been a few times in my ministry when the women would volunteer to take care of the the meal. We have a meal. We have all afternoon training. And when the women do it, it's more elegant. You know, you have... Uh, proper place settings and and you have uh, a nice menu and you have a a nice dessert and and everything is set the table is set and we come in because that's that's what the women like the man's touch is more like we plop three cardboard boxes of pizza down on the table set out a roll of paper towels And then holler out, would you pass me that two-liter Coke this way? 
and it's perfect. Can you see the difference between the man's touch and the woman's touch? Can you see how these women could enhance many things about this ministry and this traveling and serving Jesus? They were not given the opportunity to be the disciples, but they could bring some class to this thing. And they did. That's exactly what they did. Point number three. Women play an important role in Christ's ministry. One thing that makes this story so fascinating is that you have to put it against the backdrop of how oppressed women were in that culture. And that's the thought I started off with, the oppression of certain groups. Think about how oppressed women were in that culture. And it becomes all the more significant when we read this story to read of the way that Christ ministered. First of all, he ministered to the needs of all. He didn't just minister to the needs of men. He ministered to the needs of men and women. These women were, women's group, this women's group was comprised of those who were touched by Christ, healed, delivered of demons. Jesus came and he ministered to all. So he was breaking cultural barriers. You think of the cultural aspect of this and it brings the story of Christ at the well, the woman at the well, it brings out all kinds of dynamics you never saw before. When you see the cultural barriers, Christ was demolishing in his ministry. How they were aghast at how he would dare cross that cultural barrier. But it didn't bother him because there's no cultural barriers in God's kingdom. And so not only was he willing to minister to men and women alike, but he was willing to receive the ministry and the support of men and women alike. And so as Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, some of these other women get together and they form this ministry, this concept of we will be the support ministry for this group, Jesus accepted that. He approved of it. It was good. And that was another shock to this culture. They may have not had opportunities to minister because of cultural restrictions in other ways, but they figured out a way to be involved in ministry. And what they did was so important and so effective that Luke thought it necessary and appropriate to include a little note in the story of Jesus that, by the way, There was a group of women who had a ministry who were a part of making Christ and the disciples successful. He didn't have to include that. But by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he saw the value of that. The apparent leader is Mary Magdalene. And we want to be careful not to make too much out of this, but we acknowledge one thing for sure is Mary Magdalene is always listed first when she's listed with the women. So there's some significance there. Why were they always listing her first? Maybe she was more the organizer, more the ramrod of this than all the other women. But there are certain admirable characteristics about Mary that all of us should take notice of 
and the men especially notice. First of all, there is this magnificent characteristic of devotion. In carrying on this ministry for Christ and his disciples, they gave of their own means. And they had to be creative to be able to continue to help fund the ministry. Devotion, it stands out. Dedicated to the cause. Starting something and we're going to find a way to finish it. That's admirable. The second thing is the courage that these women demonstrate or especially the courage that Mary Magdalene specifically demonstrated, sailing in these uncharted waters, breaking new ground with this ministry, innovatively creating a ministry that never existed before. And she wasn't duplicating a popular ministry that seemed to be working and just taking it to a new location. She was stepping out in boldness and blazing trails. And we know a little bit more about the courage of Mary Magdalene when we see her in the setting of the resurrection. She's the one that arose early in the morning, earlier than the men. Everybody's impacted by the death of Jesus. But the Bible narrative is careful to point out is Mary Magdalene that arose earlier than everybody else. If she's like my wife, she wasn't able to sleep all night long anyway. Too much on her mind. The trauma of seeing the Savior crucified. How does the woman who carries the burden and the sympathy and the empathy that goes along with that ever just lay down and go to sleep? All you do is turn off the lights and fret. You have to know that Mary Magdalene suffered from that same emotional connection to this event. She's probably looking at the men and seeing that they're sleeping, they're snoring. And she's wondering, how can you sleep? Our teacher, the one we put our trust in, has been crucified and buried. And she doesn't want to go at night, but she's thinking all night long and planning. Not sleeping, she's planning. When it's light enough, I'm getting out of here. She's dressed and ready to go all night. When it's light enough, I'm out of here. I'm going to the grave. I'm going to go and do something. I can't just sit here. And the men, being as logical as we are, if they had a conversation and an argument with Mary, it goes like this. Can you not get it through your head? He's dead. What are you going to do for him? Well, I'm going to go and anoint the body. Why does it have to be so early in the morning? Why can't we all go later? No, it has to be early. She has her mind made up. Men, you know what it's like. You just go with it. They don't have to give a logical reason. They only have to state the case. This is what it's going to be. Early in the morning. But why is it necessary? And her own response is, you don't have to go if you don't want to. I'm going. She's in no mood to logically defend what she wants to do. And at the break of day, off to the tomb she goes. And it was the tender heart 
the tender, loving heart of a woman that brought Mary to the tomb early that morning. Think of the narrative of the resurrection. Who is the first witness? It's Mary. The men don't get it. Mary gets it. And for whatever this intuition is that says, I have to go, I have to go early, I'll go by myself if I have to, but I have to be there, was all a part of God's plan. That by the time she gets there, even as early in the morning as it was, he's already gone. The tomb is empty. The stone is rolled away. And God worked through a woman who had the courage to do and the determination to do what nobody else was willing to do or interested in doing. That God could use her to be the witness. She's the one that takes the news to the disciples and says, you will be interested in this. He's gone. And Peter, when he hears Mary saying that he's gone, he didn't believe her. The disciples did not believe her. And the reason that they did not believe her, one reason, is because in that culture, women were not reliable witnesses of anything. You just can't trust anything they say. They get it wrong. They see things wrong. And Mary comes and tells the disciples he's gone. And the initial reaction is, you can't believe anything, a woman says. Now, let me add just quickly, that was the brilliance of God choosing a woman to be the first witness. Because if men had made the tale up in that cultural culture, they would have made a man the witness. They wouldn't have chosen in this tale they spun to make a woman a witness. It would have been believable. But the reality was it was a woman. So they didn't make it up. The story is true. It was God's witness, wisdom to do that. The second thing you have to understand about this is the reason they didn't believe Mary is because of her history. Mary, before she came to Jesus, was a crazy woman. She had seven demons. She had mental problems. She was insane. And when she was touched by Jesus, the insane woman became the sane woman. But with Jesus gone, all they can think of is she's reverted. So Mary comes, the formerly insane woman, possessed of seven, de seven demons, out of her faculties, out of her mind, comes and says, the tomb is empty, he's gone. And they say, Mary's back to her old self. As crazy as she used to be. Mary wasn't crazy. <laughs> she was touched by Jesus. She wasn't crazy anymore. <laughs> she was moved by Jesus. And her testimony was true. So Peter says, I'll go check it out myself. We'll do that, Peter. And he runs. 
hearts, and he finds that indeed Mary's not crazy. <laughs> Mary's right. She persevered, and she had this self-assurance demonstrated even when others didn't believe her. She believed in herself. What an example from Mary to all of us. This wholehearted devotion to God, selling out to him. So in summary, I I just want to bring this sermon to this conclusion. Women are a blessing to the kingdom. Blessed with certain giftings and traits that will enhance the work of their kingdom. We need you. Number two, God is no respecter of persons. While cultures may have marginalized certain groups, God sees no distinction. He can and he will use you. Number three, no matter what your past is, when you're touched by God, you are prepared for a new life, a new direction, and God has a place you can serve him. Would you bow your heads?